I want to begin this morning with uh, Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18. It's following the resurrection when Jesus issues what is commonly known as the Great Commission. So as I said, we'll start in verse 18 of Matthew 28. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. When I was in Bible school, we had a class uh, missionary, it, well, it was a missionary class. I think it was called missionary evangelism, but it was a, a missionary class. And the instructor was um, somebody that had conducted crusades and campaigns all around the world, done things on a very large scale. And he presented us with a, a challenge. He told us about this tribe somewhere in the world I don't even remember who it was or what they called themselves but he said that he wanted somebody in the class to come up and share how they would minister to this lost tribe type type thing and so the the evangelists that were in the class just ran all over each other trying to get to the front to be the one to talk that's just the way evangelists are I guess but anyway, the one that, uh, that wound up taking on the assignment started talking about, uh, I left out part of it that I need to go back and, and identify. He said, the instructor said that he wanted somebody to come up and tell how they would evangelize this group based on the scriptures, Jesus being our good shepherd. And so, as I said, they, they scrambled to get up there to be the one, and the one that was the one started preaching on the good shepherd, how he gives his life to the sheep, for the sheep, and, and so forth. Went on, it was about a 10-minute exercise, and they had no trouble filling up that 10 minutes with talking about the good shepherd. So, the class clapped for him after he was done, maybe because he was done. But uh, anyway, the instructor said, and everybody felt good about it. He did a pretty good job. And, uh, and everybody was feeling good about it. And the guy that was doing it himself felt really good about it. You could just tell it was all over him. And, um, and then the instructor shared some additional information. He said, the tribe that I told you about has a much different culture than we do. Much different culture than we're accustomed to from the reading of the Bible. He said, they put their least intelligent, even mentally retarded people out to take care of the sheep. So the idea that this tribe would have about a good shepherd is the lowest level of anybody in their society. And he went on to describe it in some different terms and elaborated on it and so forth. And it showed us how even though that which was said was true about Jesus being our good shepherd. And even though the reality came about from the, the scripture about what it means for Jesus to be our good shepherd and the shepherd of our souls and so forth, he pointed out that that truth could make no positive impact on this tribe of people just simply because their culture was different than ours. And that got me to thinking about a lot of things. And I, I'll always remember, I think it was a great exercise. Because so many times we try to reach people with what we like. This uh, instructor also at a different time told us a joke about two guys that went out fishing. Guy in the front of the boat's catching fish like crazy. Guy in the back hadn't had a bite. Not even a nibble on his line. And so the guy in the front felt bad for his friend, and he says, well, maybe it's the bait you're using. What are you fishing with? He said, donuts. <laughs> and he said, well, what are you using donuts for? Fish don't like donuts. And he said, yeah, I know, but I do. <laughs> and I think the church operates that way a lot of times. 
I want you to turn with me to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 1. It says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. This word perilous is, uh, uh, has a lot of different meanings. It means dangerous. It means peculiar. It also means strength reducing. Paul is obviously talking about the end by the direction of the Holy Ghost. And he said, this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. Now, remember the, the, the time that he's writing. The time that he's writing to Timothy, and at this point in time, Timothy is the pastor of the church at Ephesus. Paul left him there to pastor the church. And the, the church at Ephesus is the world's greatest church. It's the mega church of its day. There were a lot of people that were there in Ephesus as a part of that church. Uh, the Apostle John was a part of that church. Mary, Jesus' mother, was a part of that church. You remember on the cross, Jesus commissioned John to take care of his mother. Well, that's where they were. That's where they lived at that point in time, at the, at the point in time that this is being written. Apollos was a part of that church. Peter had been through there. He didn't stay or reside, but he'd been through there. Just about anybody that was anybody had been a part of that church at some point in time in some way or some manner. And Timothy's been left to preach there. And what Paul says about the danger that's ahead doesn't have to do with persecution. I should point out that Timothy was martyred in the streets of Ephesus at the age of 80. Many years after this thing is being written, of course, or after it was written. But this is a generation that Paul is writing to that knows full well what persecution is all about. Christians are being killed in different places and at different times in varying measures. But they knew about violence. They knew about the, the reality of persecution, even unto death. And notice that Paul says, when the end comes, it's really going to get dangerous. Well, what's the danger that he's telling them to look, look out for or to be ready for? For men shall be lovers of their own selves. Covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, insert entitled or feeling entitled there. Unholy, without natural affection. Natural affection here is talking about the breakdown of the family, not homosexuality. He's talking about without proper love or concern for your family. So he's talking about the breakdown of the family there. Without natural affection, truce breakers, nobody's words any good, false accusers, incontinent, that means without any self-discipline whatsoever. Fierce, that means savage, willing to destroy somebody's life just because they get in their way. Despisers of those that are good, that's really persecution. Or the reference to persecution here. Traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. That last statement, that last scripture, having a a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. That one's always kind of intrigued me. But I think, the, I think the reality of what Paul is warning us, or what the Holy Ghost is warning us through the Apostle Paul about, is more a situation of people claiming to be godly, but without the power of the gospel. Now, folks, if you'll look at all of those things as a group, 
you'll recognize that these are cultural issues. He's saying that the danger in the last days will come from the culture, the society's culture. Not just widespread martyrdom or beheading, as they were familiar with, certainly much more than we are. After World War II, World War II ended in 1945, millions of people returned to America. Millions of soldiers came back to America, and it was a very difficult time, according to historical records, because now all of a sudden millions of people, new people are being inserted back into society. And the things that they have witnessed during the war changed them. It affected them in horrible, horrible, horror-filled ways. It's always been the case throughout history that war degrades the generation following because things that you would not ordinarily see or expect to see or certainly want to see and I'm talking about the horrors of death those things impacted the people that were involved in the wars in ways that you couldn't just turn off when you came home we have terms for it nowadays post-traumatic stress disorder. But folks, that's always been around even before they named it. And so many of the people that came back from the war were facing things that, that in some cases, many cases perhaps, they never did get free from. And so the generation following the World War II became a generation that in many ways were, I don't want to say not parented, but the parenting styles were greatly changed. It became known as the self generation. Now we also know them as baby boomers, but they were a group, a generation of people that had experienced because of the experience of their parents, they came into experiences unlike anything that had ever been recognized. And there were a couple of reasons for that. One was the acceptance of psychology. After World War II, psychologists and psychotherapists and psychoanalysts became really the thing that was in vogue. Because as you could well understand, just with uh, the single event of Holocaust, those that were faced with that experienced horror on a level that had never been known before, at least not in modern history. And so everybody's going for the psychological explanation for what was going on in their lives and in their minds. And spirituality, literally the spiritual foundation of America, was forfeited to a great degree for the sake of psychology. Maybe I should say it was replaced by psychology. Everybody was looking for a way to explain away or identify their reactions to the experience of war. Another thing that brought this about was the advent of television. Television became the way to communicate to everybody pretty much the same thing. The baby boomer generation is said to be the first standardized generation because we all witnessed the same thing watching the same experiences on TV. Now, that doesn't mean that psychology is bad, and it doesn't mean TV is bad. But to the degree that the devil had any influence, it began to degrade the society. 
What I'm really saying, folks, is that when the rich young ruler came to Jesus, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But after World War II, even up to the present day, the question by most people is, what's in it for me? Not what do I have to do to come to God? Well, the church adapted, and there's a couple of ways that you can adapt, really only two ways. And in every generation, in every period of time, there are always two different people, two different groups of people. There's the liberationalist who want to be free from anything and everything in the past. And there are the traditionalists who want to hold on to the things of the past. Well, during the, especially during the 60s, as these baby boomer, boomers are coming into teenage years and young adulthood, these guys were ex- uh, uh, exposed to the liberation of, the, uh, of, of every group in the American society. You remember the women's liberation movement started back then? Some of you may remember at least. Some of you don't remember when people went a whole day without taking a picture of anything. (laughs) Not even your food. But that was when the women's liberation movement took place. That's when the, uh, the children's liberation movement took place. And what I mean by that is that Dr. Spock told us that we shouldn't spank Johnny and Sally. We just need to let those little darlings express themselves. And that's what the self-generation was all about. Success for the self-generation was the most or the widest range of experiences that you could get there's no self-denial or delayed gratification or anything like that in their minds that's the old way that's the archaic way and it was substituted for by self-expression and folks that self-expression it's not new You remember in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had it all. They had it all. But the devil tempted them with an experience that for some reason they thought they needed. Well, it didn't work out too well for them. Certainly not every experience is a good experience. But you'd be hard put to find somebody in our present day that would claim that or acknowledge that, particularly young people. Young people are always more susceptible to the devil's temptations regarding experience. And the reason for that is very simple. The older we get, the more experiences that we have, the more we recognize not every experience is a good one. But it goes back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve had to express themselves in order to experience something they didn't have. Turned out to be something they didn't want. But it was experienced nevertheless. So during those years, and as a foundation, those years being a foundation for the future that was ahead, the symbol for America was no longer the church or the church building. The symbol for America became the hospital. And back in the day when they had bookstores, the largest section of every bookstore was the self-help section. People were trying to diagnose their own problems, trying to find out the reason for why they did what they did or felt what they felt or whatever. And so the idea that free love, free sex, anything and everything that you wanted to experience, which perhaps reached its height in the 60s or early 70s, to some degree at least, 
Those were the things that you measured success in life by. The widest range of experience was thought to be the thing that would bring you to the ultimate enjoyment in life. Well, when it comes to reaching other people with the gospel, certainly culture is an issue, and that experiment or um, assignment that I told you about certainly proved to us to be the case. But something happened to the American church that was different and made the presentation of the gospel different than just trying to find out the culture of the people that you're going to to witness to or to try to win to Jesus. And what happened with us is the culture changed underneath our feet. We didn't have to, the church, me, I mean by we, didn't have to go to a foreign land, didn't have to go to a third world nation to find a different culture. There was a different culture that was establishing and growing right underneath our feet. So what did the church do? Well, as I said, there's always been two groups of people in every generation. The liberationists, which want to throw away the the, the past and start new. And the traditionalists, which want to hold on to the things of the past. Now, folks, you need to understand that God is a God of tradition. He said, don't remove the landmarks of your fathers. So as far as those two groups are concerned... God is very much more a traditionalist than a liberationist. So the church, having those two options, could either hold on to the things of the past. We might call that the old way of doing things. Or come up with a new way of doing things to try to reach the people that were willing to turn loose of the past themselves. Churches became user-friendly. Churches began to, to identify what the greatest needs of the people were in the eyes of those people. And so what we try to do, or what the church tried to do, is create a group for every activity or every interest. We want church to be a full-service church. If you like cooking on Thursday between the time of 9.30 and 9.45, we've got a group for you. If you like riding motorcycles and shooting bows and arrows, we've got a group for you, even if you want to do them at the same time. (laughs) And the church bought into the idea that if we can create a community, and that's what these groups are all about, If we can create a a community of people that enjoy doing the same things, then they'll accept and take hold of our doctrine. But that didn't really work. They took hold of the groups. But that's really about as far as it went. And so, the modern day church, or a large segment of it at least, morphed into becoming a social organization rather than the source of truth. And folks, mankind needs a savior, not a social organization. Mankind needs answers for the hard questions of his existence and what his purpose is and who God is and how do I relate to God. And those are questions no social organizations can ever answer. Just can't do it. You might be interested to know that in 1978, and I understand this is ancient history for a lot of you folks. Someone said that history began in the year you were born. I think there's a lot of truth to that. Because unless you're a history buff, or really pay attention in the classes and you know, the history classes you had in high school. Not much of anybody remembers much history anymore. But again, 1978, let me finish this. 1978, Gallup took a poll 
and found that 80% of the people that were surveyed believed that people should develop their spiritual beliefs without any influence from the church whatsoever. They called themselves believers but not belongers. They said that they were interested in spiritual things, but they rejected the church. Now, folks, there's a lot of things about church that people should reject. And Paul told us the same thing. Paul talked in his warnings to the church. Paul talked more about false ministers, false false prophets, false apostles, and so forth. He warned them more, warned us more about false ministers than any other thing. Well, we need to know how to recognize false ministry. And we should turn away from that. Here in 2 Timothy 3, where we just read, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. There are things we need to turn away from. But the Word of God is not one of them. So the church is presented with a dilemma today. And it's the same temptation that there's always been. But the more and more that society gets away from the foundations of our fathers, the more and the more the church has to compromise itself and its principles to get the ear of those people. And so the end result is the church goes down step by step, level by level, right along with society. I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. Beginning in verse 6, this is Paul's second missionary journey. It says, now when they had gone throughout Phrygia, or Phrygia, and the region of Galatia, and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, after they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. Now I want you to see that in verse 6 and in verse 7, the Holy Ghost is telling them where not to go. Now we don't know exactly how this happened. Here in verse 6, It says they were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. I don't know how he forbade them. Do you? It doesn't seem to indicate that that the road was not open to them. But rather seems to indicate that they wanted to go there and the Holy Spirit stopped them in some way or another. Now folks, at the time that this is taking place, they're located in what we know of as the nation of Turkey. The western part of the nation of Turkey. It's right uh, off of the Aegean Sea, which is pretty much the main line of the epicenter of the Roman Empire at that time. The Aegean Sea, I believe, is the one that is on the heel side of the boot of Italy. So it's right there in the center. So the Holy Ghost forbid them to preach the word in Asia. And notice verse 7 again, after they were come to Mysia, they essayed. The word essayed means tried to. They attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. Now, Bithynia and Asia are are both east, north and east, of where they are when these things take place. In other words, Paul and his company seemed to have the idea, and apparently it was just their idea, not God's, but they seemed to have the idea that that was the way that God wanted them to go. But the Holy Ghost said no to both of those. Well, here's what happened next. Verse 8, And they passing by Mysia came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night, and there stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go to Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. 
This changed the face of the world. If they had gone east into Bithynia or Asia, then the gospel would have traveled eastward toward Japan and China. But the fact that they went westward spread the gospel toward Spain and throughout Europe and became the sole reason why America was founded in the way that it was. Had the gospel gone east, Europe would not have received the gospel in the manner that it did. And 1,500 years or so later, well, even more than that, I guess, 1,700 years later, there would have been no founding fathers to desire to go to a new land to have religious liberty. America, if it had been founded at all, would not have been founded on the, uh, the foundation that we have. Now, anybody that has any knowledge whatsoever about church history knows that the founders put the Establishment Clause in the Constitution to forbid a state-sponsored uh, religion or a state-sponsored church. It has nothing to do with separation of church and state as the people that use the term claim it to be today. The phrase separation of church and state came from a letter that Thomas Jefferson in about 1800 after he was elected president of the United States a letter he wrote to the Danbury Baptist Association because the Baptists were afraid because some of the, of some of the people that had been newly elected that they would be persecuted under this constitution and Jefferson just simply said the separation of church and state prevents any one Christian denomination or one Christian church to bring legal actions against another. See, the founding fathers were a part of the history of state-run churches. And that's part of what they were trying to get away from when they came to, the, to America. So the fact that America was founded on the Christian beliefs that it is, that it was. Created a nation, a place, unlike anything ever known in history before or will ever be known after. Such that funded and provided 90% of the missions works done in the world. That 90% of the works that have been supported and launched are from America. In that sense, America has done the will of the, will of the Father, has promoted the kingdom of God. And the revolution that took place in the founding of this country and breaking away from England, the revolution that took place and the impact that it had upon the world cannot be exaggerated. Much of, most of, the reason the world is the way that it is is because of America. But the question now is, is America relevant to the work God has given us to do? Look with me to another scripture. Look at James chapter 5. I want you to see the seventh verse. James writing to the church said, be patient therefore, brethren, under the coming of the Lord. Well, we know what he's talking about then, don't we? He's talking about Jesus returning. He said, be patient therefore, under the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and has long patience for it, 
until he received the early and the latter rain. Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Notice what he's talking about as far as the work that is yet to be completed. He said the husbandman, talking about Jesus, the husbandman waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Now what is the precious fruit of the earth? Folks, God has only cared about one thing ever when it comes to things on the earth, and that's people. So the precious fruit of the earth has got to be talking about people coming into his family. We know that it's the will of God for all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, then why aren't all men saved? If it's the will of God, as some people preach concerning the sovereignty of God, God's in control. Well, if God's in control and he wants everybody to be saved, then why isn't everybody saved? Why does the same Bible that tells us that God wants everybody to be saved tells us that the, the road to, to hell is wide and heavily populated? It's not what God wants. Now, if you understand that that is specifically what God's word says he wants and recognizes at the same time that it's not the way things are, then you cannot escape the reality that God's not the one making the decisions. You cannot escape the reality that things are done in people's lives that God doesn't want to be. You have to acknowledge that. Now, I know a lot of the church won't. I know a lot of the church will say, well, we don't understand, but God's sovereign, and so therefore we just have to think God's sovereignty. But if God is sovereign, then a lot of the Bible is a lie. If God is sovereign in the sense, don't get me wrong, he's the creator of heaven and earth. He is the all-powerful one. But he's also the one that said that he's exalted his word above his name. Which very simply means no matter what God could do, he's limited what he will do to what his word says. And the word of God says that man was created on the earth with with authority and for the purpose of exercising authority. God's not the one that has authority here. Now he's the owner of the planet. And that gives him the right to do certain things. But God can't be the only one pulling strings here. So God wants everybody to be saved, but leaves it up to us to do the salvation preaching. Be patient, therefore, brethren, under the coming of the Lord, for the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and has long patience for it, Think about how true that is. With all the things that have gone on over the last thousands of years, 2,000 years, with all the things that God gets blamed for by the people that claim to love him, he just keeps being patient. Now, we know what he's patient for. He's patient for this harvesting into his family of the precious fruit of the earth, people being swept into the kingdom of God. But how's that going to come about? He has long patience for the precious fruit of the earth until, everybody say until. In other words, here's the way that you're going to know where you're at the end. He has long patience for it until he received the early and the latter rain. Now the early and the latter rain is always talked about as moves of God. It's always talked about as works of the Holy Spirit. Crops grow in Israel based on two events, the early rain and the latter rain. The early rain is important to the crops and the welfare of the nation because without the early rain, the seed that they sow cannot set and start growing roots. Without the latter rain, Israel's crops cannot mature. So they become something that's worth having to eat. So God used this example of the early and the latter rain. Just as it produces natural fruits and vegetables and so forth. For the land of Israel. So also the moving of the Holy Ghost. 
in the early rain and the latter rain are necessary for the precious fruit of the earth. Now, folks, I personally believe, you judge this for yourself, but I personally believe the early rain was what is recorded in the book of Acts. The latter rain is what's left for the last days. Now, Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 through 9, tells us a little bit about that. It talks about the glory of the Lord being revealed. You cannot read the book of Acts, particularly the early part, the early chapters of the book of Acts, and fail to see the glory of God. Now, remember what Jesus said. Jesus told his disciples to pray for the kingdom of God to come. So that the will of God can be done on the earth just like it is in heaven. That was part of the prayer that Jesus gave the disciples when they asked him to teach them how to pray. Well, the book of Acts and the events that took place transcribed because of Jesus' resurrection. The book of Acts reveals what the glory of God looks like. And again, Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 through 9 tell us that the glory of the latter days shall be greater than of the former. In other words, it's saying the latter rain and the the results that it will bring, the last day move of the Holy Ghost, and the results that it will bring are greater than the results that occurred in the book of Acts that are recorded for us. Look how many thousands of people were swept into the kingdom of God by just a couple of simple events, simple things that took place in and around Jerusalem. On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Ghost was poured out, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Peter, and through his preaching, very simple message, through his preaching about Jesus being resurrected, 2,000 people were saved that day. Or was it 3,000? 3,000. It's easy to lose that thousand people. Then in Acts chapter 3, it talks about the man that was healed at the beautiful gate. And when they preached that it was Jesus in the name of Jesus that made the man strong and brought him back to health, 5,000 people were saved then. What wonderful things to experience. If I could go back in time and experience something, I think I'd want to be around for those few months. The few first months of the church. What a display of God's glory. Yet the Bible says that the glory of the Lord in our day, the last days, shall be greater than of the former. And folks, this really gets down to what I'm trying to say. When I've used a lot of church information and historical information to try to prove, the reality is simply this. There is no evangelism without the healing power of God. So we're to be patient under the coming of the Lord because he's waiting for the precious fruit of the earth and has long patience for it until he received the early and the latter rain. Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. Jesus is summing up some things that he told the disciples about the end of time. They asked, or he made the statement about the temple, which was Herod's temple, which wasn't built for the purpose of worshiping God. Herod had it constructed as a monument to his name, not to the name of God. And so Jesus never was impressed with the temple. The disciples were, however, and so they pointed it out to him and said, man, isn't this beautiful? And Jesus said, it won't be long before there's not one stone left upon another here. And so that causes them to think about the end times. We know that uh, took place in 70 AD. After everybody's letter and account was written except for John, When Jesus, or when, uh, oh, what's that guy's name? Paul. When Paul wrote to the church, assuming he was the author of the book that was written to the Hebrews, 
temple worship and sacrifice is still taking place. So we know it had to be before 70 AD. But Jesus trying to explain to his disciples and answer their questions about the end of time. I'm going to pull one scripture out of context here. In verse 14, Matthew 24, 14, he says, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. I want you to notice that the preaching of the gospel is a sign of the end. But notice he said that it shall be preached with a witness. That word witness means with evidence or proof. In other words, Jesus is saying the same thing that James said about there being a move of the Holy Ghost and the glory of the Lord poured out in the last days that will prove that Jesus is alive. Remember that lost, forgotten tribe in Africa or wherever it was that we were told about in my missionary class? You know how to reach them? You're not going to reach them with the story of the Good Shepherd. You're going to reach them with the power of God. You're going to reach them with a display of God's power. Just like you reach everybody else. So Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. For a witness unto all nations. For a witness unto all nations. And then shall the end come. Folks, that has to mean the whole earth is going to know. That has to mean the whole earth is going to see the power of God, see the glory of God manifest. There are promises that God has made to us through the years. Mostly Old Testament promises, but there are still some things in the New Testament that you can tie to them. Things like the glory of the Lord shall cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. Somebody please explain to me how the waters cover the sea. That seems like such an improper way to say something. Is he talking about the depths of the waters? As the waters cover the sea. The water is the sea. You know why the Bible says it that way? Because the last day plan of God, the last day revelation of the glory of the Lord is going to be something like you've never heard before and something that you cannot define. The Bible says in another place that the whole earth shall be filled with the knowledge of his glory. The whole earth. Sounds like unto all nations. Now what kind of gospel is this that's going to provide proof? Let me read to you from Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4 beginning in verse 23. And Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom And healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria. And they brought unto him all sick people. Now folks I want you to realize Syria is removed from Israel. Syria heard of the things that Jesus was doing. News traveled a long way. It wasn't just the nation of Israel that was aware of Jesus. And the works that he was doing. Syria heard. Now we don't exactly know where the boundaries of Syria were in those times. We know Syria is north of Lebanon. And some of what the Bible says about the last day war. World War III that starts after the church is gone. That begins the day of uh, the seven years of tribulation. We know Syria comes down from the north through Lebanon to attack Israel. But I want you to see that Jesus' fame reached a long way. He never traveled to Syria. But people were coming to him from there. And his fame went throughout all Syria. And they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with diverse disease and torments. And those which were possessed with devils. And those which were lunatic. And those which had the palsy. And he healed them. I wonder if that's the same gospel Jesus is talking about that will be preached as a witness or for a witness before the end. Matthew chapter 9. 
Verse 35, and Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Notice that phrase. That's what Jesus told the disciples to pray would come. That's what was ushered in when Jesus was raised from the dead. The gospel of the kingdom has now come. We've now been translated into the kingdom of his dear son. Well, that would have to be the kingdom of God then, wouldn't it? That's what's already come. Jesus went about the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then said he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers unto his harvest. Notice it's not just the power of God that does it alone. The power of God draws the attention of the people and enables them to hear the word of God which builds faith in their hearts so that they can enter into the family of God. But it's not just power alone that's going to do it. It's power demonstrated by God sent and God ordained ministers. Because it's the preaching of the gospel. God has set forth the foolishness of preaching, Paul said. To bring people into the kingdom of God. Into his family. Look with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Verse 1. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul, who knew more about God than anybody on the face of the earth at that point in time, who had received a revelation that even some of the other apostles, well, at least Peter, said was hard to understand. Paul said, I didn't come to you trying to show you how much I know. He could have. He could have blown him away with some of the things that he knows. Paul, by his own account, received revelation that he didn't have, have words to put into. King James translates it, words that he heard words that were not lawful to speak. That doesn't mean God wouldn't let him. It means that he didn't have any frame of reference to explain it. Now, folks, when you're caught up into heaven and you see things that you can't describe, let that idea sink in. He saw things that he could not describe, that there were no words to give description to. At the very least, I think we can say God's bigger than our, than our little brains can comprehend. And he did this. He decided, he purposed to know only the crucifixion of Jesus among them so that their faith would stand in the power of God and not anything that man can do. Now, folks, I'm going to make a, uh, an observation here Again, you judge this for yourself, as with everything else that I say you should. It looks to me like most of the evangelism efforts that are taking place that we're aware of. Now, there are things going on in other parts of the world and revivals taking place in other parts of the world that we just don't hear about. But the things that we know of, by and large, the results that are coming or the, the thing that are producing, the thing that is producing results of salvations is talking people into the word of truth. Reaching them through their minds. And that appeals to some people because through the history that we talked about earlier on in the service, man has become so dependent on his mind. He's become so dependent on understanding 
rather than trusting from his heart. That's what got Adam and Eve in trouble, folks. They didn't trust God with their hearts. They leaned to their own understanding. Somehow or another, the devil was able to entice them into thinking they were missing out on something that they needed to experience. What did they experience? Spiritual death. Was that a good experience or a bad experience? Notice that they themselves didn't recognize what was best for them. And oh boy, if there's anything we could teach young people, if there was any one simple thing, one single thing that I would want to impart to every young person that we have contact with that's a part of this church or considers themselves to be a part of our family, if there's one thing I could give them, it's the understanding, the realization that at this point in their lives, they don't know what's in their best interest. I saw a medical article not long ago that identified that young people's brains don't fully mature until they're 25. Up until that age, they're still in the growing process. Well, I would submit to you folks that by age 25, many, if not most people, have made the major decisions in their lives that set their track for their time here on the earth. That means people get married before their brains are fully grown. (laughs) But not to worry. The self-generation says that your commitment to marriage should only last as long as it adds to your happiness. One of the hardest things for me to learn, even though I knew God, even though I'd been saved all but a week or 10 days of my life, or in fellowship with, uh, contact with God at least, one of the hardest things for me to accept was that God wanted better for me than I wanted for myself. And because I didn't for a long time accept that, I kept going my own way hoping God would just bring blessing to it. But the blessing of God is always on his way. Let him show you his way. And you don't have to ask for the blessing. It's already there. It's something I still struggle with sometimes. And I certainly should know better by now. I'm over 25, so my brain is fully grown. (laughs) But we're so used to walking by our understanding. We're so used to walking by what our head knows. And as a society, we forfeited spiritual development for the education of the mind. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. Folks, there's a worldwide move of God that's coming. And when the Bible says a witness unto all nations, when we put it in the terms of a worldwide move of God, I don't mean by that that it's going to be started or headquartered in one place and go out from there. I mean there's going to be a move of God in every country, in every nation, among every people. No wonder he told his disciples to pray for the Lord to send people into the harvest. It's going to mean that each country, and a lot of countries aren't even open to the the gospel being preached, but those aren't going to be left out either. Unto all nations, the scripture says. And that gospel that is to be preached in all nations for a witness, a witness unto all those nations, has got to be the same thing as what we see in Jesus' ministry, where he taught, he preached, and he healed the sick. 
It's got to be the same thing or similar to what the church did in the name of Jesus after his resurrection, which by and large was heal the sick and do miracles. Paul's normal operation when he went into a town to plant a new church, he'd go into the synagogues. That's why he went to the major cities because most of the major cities had Jewish synagogues where the smaller towns would not. He'd go into the synagogues and he would preach from the Old Testament. He would dazzle people with his knowledge of the Old Testament and the law of Moses. And at the point where he came to, uh, where he realized that they understood the wisdom that this guy, Paul, had concerning the scriptures and concerning the law of Moses, that's when he'd start preaching to them that Jesus is the Messiah. He established himself according to the things that he had been trained in, added to the revelation of the Holy Ghost, of course. But then, not in the beginning, not the first time he went to town, but then after some days or months, he would share that Jesus was the Messiah. That usually got him kicked out of the synagogue. But by then, there had been enough people that had heard him teach and preach so as to continue to follow him. And then some miracle would occur. Some healing would take place. And the towns would be turned upside down. And that was one guy. If one guy could do those kind of things, produce those kind of results, what could the family of God do with the same knowledge that he had about who we are in Christ? This gospel shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Folks, I'm not looking for blood moons. I'm not looking for archaeological finds. Did I say that right? That thing that has reference to archaeology. I'm not looking for those things. I'm not looking for the ark to be restored or found. I'm not looking for the Jews to take over the Temple Mount. I'm looking for one and only one thing to signal the end. And that's the glory of God to be seen and known in all nations. Many years ago I read after John Lake. And I read what he prayed for the work that he did in Africa. And the establishing of the churches and the church networks. The organization of the churches that he founded at one time there were over 500 of those and he would pray that healing would flow like a river through those churches and that salvation would rise as the tide he seemed to know what Paul knew there is no evangelism without the power of God but with the power of God evangelism becomes the easiest thing in the world Let's pray. Before we do that, if you're here in this place this morning and you need healing in your body, stand up. All right, I want a couple of people to go around each one of these people that are standing. Would you please? Believers, if you believe in healing in the name of Jesus, at least one person, a couple if you can get around. I know it's kind of difficult to get in and out of the rows. I just want to make sure that everybody is having hands laid on them by at least one person. Are we set? Father, in the name of Jesus. The Holy Ghost told us that if there are any sick among us, we should call for the elders of the church and the elders should pray over them in the name of the Lord. 
and the prayer of faith shall save the sick. We know the healing is not in the ministry. We know the healing is not in the anointing of oil. It's the prayer of faith that saves or heals the sick. So in the name of Jesus, we speak healing to each and every one of these people. In the name of Jesus, we command these bodies to be well. In the name of Jesus, because he took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, we say to these bodies, be healed now. In Jesus' name. Be healed now. In Jesus' name. Now, Lord, your word says that if we'll do what we just did, you will raise each one of these people up. And if they've committed sins, they shall be forgiven them. So no matter what the devil says about our own actions or our own failures, those sins, because they are forgiven, cannot hinder the healing power of God from making us whole now. So we thank you, Father, that each and every one of these people are healed by faith now in Jesus' name. Now, if it's done, let's lift our hands and thank God. We bless you, Father. We magnify your holy name. Healing flows like a river through this church. And causes salvation to rise as the tide. Flowing like a river by the Holy Ghost. Flowing like a river by the power of God. Flowing like a river in Jesus' name. We bless you, Father. We thank you for your great plan. We thank you for choosing us to live in these last glorious days. No matter how perilous or dangerous the times come, no matter what the culture does around us, we shall hold fast to your word, for your word is truth. In Jesus' name. Say it with me, for the Lord is good. And his healing mercy endureth forever. Amen. 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 Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for being part of our family. Folks, if you pray for anything, pray for the power of God to be revealed. Pray for the latter rain. Pray for the work of the Holy Ghost to be done. Hallelujah. We love you. Have a great day.